0: Stories at the intersection of music and life.
1: Welcome to Music Life Radio. I am your host, Dan Sauter. Music Life Radio is a free podcast available on iTunes and your interwebs at musicliferadio.com. And it features interviews and stories about and related to music. Today on the program, Josh Allman interviews Dave Maros from the alternative progressive rock band Spock's Beard. I spoke with Dave Merrow, a bass player of the progressive rock band Spock's Beard. They're currently working on their 11th album with their latest lineup, including the recent addition of vocalist and guitarist Ted Leonard.
2: When did you first start playing bass? I started playing music when I was nine. Um, my parents, my dad got a piano and he tinkered around on, a, on that a little bit, and I was, seemed interested in it, so they asked me if I was interested in taking piano lessons. So I did that for a while. I didn't get into bass until college. I was 20. I went from piano. I worked on piano pretty pretty hard for a few years, three or four years. I was progressing really nicely on that. But then I got into uh, junior high, and the band was the coolest thing, and I just wanted to play a horn. So then I went to college. I was at uh, UC Berkeley, playing in the jazz ensemble there, playing uh, bass trombone and tuba my friends started a band and, uh, they needed a bass player and they just figured I could do it. So that was the beginning of the end.
1: I hear that you played with Eric Burden and the animals for many years, as well as you were their tour manager.
2: Yeah. I played with him for almost 16 years and was also a tour manager for about, I guess, 12 of those. And that was a good, good steady gig. We'd doing, uh, you know, bluesy stuff, animals music and, I uh, toured all over the place, all over the planet. And, uh, it was fun. It was a good gig.
1: What kind of uh, logistical problems did you have to solve on gigs?
2: Oh, Just the typical logistics you know, that any band would face. We'd do a lot of, um, all of our gigs almost were all fly gigs, so we have to, the promoter would have to arrange backline to be brought in, uh, the drums and amps and keyboards and stuff. I'd have to you know, interface with the uh, rental companies and the sound companies. and you know, When you're dealing with a different different set of gear at every single gig you know that can be sometimes it's a pleasant surprise sometimes it's not so pleasant and so you know a lot of my time was spent making sure going through every little detail you know what kind of sustain does the piano have Is it, you know because you get a yamaha piano with a chord sustain pedal you know so i learned a lot about stupid little stuff that no one should have to care about like the polarity of a chord sustain pedal you know booking hotel. Thousand flights, you know, we, we flew out of four separate airports, so that was a little bit hard to uh, coordinate a lot of times. Yeah, there was uh, two, two guys that flew out of LAX, and Eric flew out of Palm Springs, I flew out of Sacramento, um, then uh, the keyboard player flew out of uh, uh, Santa Ana, um, John Wayne, Orange County Airport. And so, you know, I have to get everybody so that everyone arrives at the same place at kind of the same time. And if not, they had to get some other form of transportation to get to where we were. And, you know, uh, the the biggest logistical challenge I ever had was um, we had to get from, I think it was Oshkosh, Wisconsin, to somewhere really you know, somewhere in Montana or somewhere. There were no commercial flights that would get us there on time. And uh, it was too far to drive. And, you know, it was just like, oh, man. So, and it was also like kind of before you could really find everything on the internet. I had to charter a plane. And it, so I was just calling the Chamber of Commerce and Oshkosh and tracking down people. And, got, you know, I got it going.
1: what drove you to play progressive music and when did you first meet neil and alan
2: i just kind of i kind of wound up playing the progressive stuff because of spock's beard i liked it kind of casually before that um kind of like everyone else that you talk to you know there was some parts of yes records and you know maybe a genesis record or two that i liked and some of the bizarre Gentle giant stuff and stuff but i wasn't a real uh, prog fan I met Neil and Al pretty soon after I moved to L.A. I probably met them in 85, maybe 86 or something, and was involved with a couple of little... Neil was always trying to do his piano singer-songwriter, kind of Billy Joel-ish type of stuff, and uh, me and a couple of my buddies played with him on a couple of those things. And Al, I used to write song demos with uh, John, who I'm still writing with, and uh, we used to have Al come over and play guitar on on some of those. So I knew those guys from the 80s, and just kind of kept in touch. When Spock's Beard happened, uh, you know, they, they started off with another bass player, and that didn't work out one way or another, and uh, Al called me one day, I think it was in 94, maybe 93, and he said that, you know, Neil had written these demos, and they were getting a band together, and, and he just wanted to see if I was interested, and it was really good timing for me. I was really looking for something, you know, real challenging like that, so it was a, a very good opportunity.
1: Do you think the band would last this long?
2: No, I mean, at first we just got together. Al Al and Neil just kind of thought it would be really fun to do a couple live shows. And that's, we were just, you know, man, this stuff would be fun to play. Let's do a couple shows. And so that happened. And then it was kind of like uh, Neil had recorded all the demos on his little cassette 4-track. And uh, it's like, I wonder what it would sound like if we recorded it properly. And so we kind of recorded that. And one thing led to another. And I don't even know how it happened, but we got a little distribution deal on Symphonic Records. Then, you know, that led to another CD and then another record company, and all of a sudden we realized, oh, this is a band. We didn't even think anybody would would like it at all. I mean, we were doing it completely for fun, and however long it lasted, we didn't even know there was a prog rock scene. We just assumed that there wasn't, and that no one would be interested in hearing it except for a couple of our buddies, and, you know, we were... Very pleasantly surprised. I first heard
1: of the band long before I actually heard your music. What led to you using the name Spock's Beard?
2: Oh, that was kind of funny. Um, Neil and uh, Al were at a party, I guess, <clears throat> at some point before Spock's Beard even existed, and it was a really—they were just sitting back watching people, and it was like this is really bizarre. This party—it's kind of like an alternate universe here, you know—and. And, um, and then I, one of them, I can't remember who it was, said, yeah, it was like that one episode where Spock wore, had a beard. And then they like, Hey, that would be a good name for a band, man. Spock's beard. And, you know, they laughed about it. And then when Spock's beard happened, uh, we needed to, a band name. And that's always the hardest part of a band. It's like thinking of a name that everyone will agree on. And we were going through pages and pages of, uh, ideas and it was always really funny because the whole band you know we have the sense of humor of like 12 year old boys so you know we'd (laughs) we'd we'd start off with you know about five minutes of like serious band names it's like no that's too pretentious no that's stupid what are you thinking you know and, and after about five minutes it would just turn into like complete like toilet humor you know silliness and and so we just had all these and the name we would always be kicking out names and always getting turned down and Spock's beard was always on the list. Nobody really liked it that much, but no one was like bummed out by it. It always managed to stay on every list. And we finally just go, well let's no one hates it, so let's just use it. And, and then we'll just wait to get sued. with Spock, you know, I mean there's there's lots it's a name, you know, there's lots of with the last name spock so it would probably be a hard case for him but uh, if for the first couple of years we were like making up all these stories of where the name really came from so i think one of them was neil had a dog named spock and he had like some facial hair and so that's where we got it and it was all just like fabricated stories to like cover our cover our asses if we ever needed to i noticed you guys only played one show here in the
1: states on the last tour what would you say the main difference is between touring in the U.S.
2: versus Europe? Uh, there's a lot of differences. <clears throat> we have a more concentrated audience in Europe. Actually, it's it's bigger, too. We I think we have about probably about two-thirds of our audiences in Europe, and a lot of those are in the countries that we tour in, you know, like Holland, Germany, England. So, you know, we can do, a, and the venues seem to be set up more for kind of medium-level touring bands. You know, they've Got Shore power for when the bus pulls up, and you know catering areas and you know all the stuff that, that a touring band needs and in the United States, a lot of those kind of places don't have any of that infrastructure until so you get into the bigger venues, which we, we can't play the bigger venues because we can't draw that much. Another thing is just ticket sales just because of the the size of the United States. you know if we play in, in uh, Akron, Ohio, you know, we might get sixty people there because it's just too far from people from like New York or Dallas or wherever to, to, to be and uh, it's a lot easier in Europe for people to travel. It's a, you know, that's another corollary of that. It's a lot more expensive to tour in the United States because of the distances. You can't just get on a bus, you know, tour bus and and drive between venues because, you know, there's too many hundreds of miles in between venues that would hire a prog rock band. A lot of difficulties playing in the States. We've tried almost every way that we can think of to do it, and it just doesn't seem to work out financially.
1: Are things easier logistically for shows and rehearsals now that Nick DiVergio has left and there's only Jimmy Keegan's one drum set?
2: Oh, yeah, for space on stage, that's definitely a factor. Um, you know, a factor in time it takes us to set up and the space we take on stage, and, you know, that, that's a big... Uh, even rehearsals, I mean, Al's got a really nice studio... that he built behind his house it's this totally studio quality soundproof structure we could never rehearse in there before because two drum sets would take up almost the entire space you know now we can rehearse in there so we save money by uh, not having to rent rehearsal space and it's in his backyard which is like totally casual and cool so it's a lot better that way too yeah there's always you know ted and i live up here in sacramento and the rest of the guys live down in los angeles so now you know It's not just me having to go down to L.A. It's me and Ted. And then Jimmy's coming in from Las Vegas. There's always some... When we first started, everyone just lived in L.A. and it was really easy. And now everyone's kind of spreading out. And there's always somebody that's out of town. And Rio was in Japan for about a year. And, you know, there's always some kind of weird hurdle to overcome that way. But we keep managing to do stuff. What led
1: up to Rio joining the band? And where did you find
2: Nick? Um that was before i was in the band that was that first version of the band that did they did two or three live gigs with another bass player <clears throat> and that was in 93 i believe and they met i think they met rio at a uh, at a jam session or something that's where they they met nick at some another jam session too they used to just al was going around trying to meet new musicians and so he go to these jam nights at different places and he met a few people that way and Nick was one of them, and Rio was another one.
1: What is your writing process, and do you write solely on the bass, or do you use other instruments?
2: I uh, write mostly on keyboards. Um, every once in a while, when there's some real meathead riff rock, you know, almost metal kind of thing, that's something that I've written on bass, but for the most part, I write on keyboards, because it's really hard to write on bass. It's just, you know, just one note.
1: Yeah, I get that. Uh, a lot of times when I write... I write on the guitar rather than the bass.
2: Yeah, that's, that's one thing I really regret never, never learning is guitar. I can't play a guitar at all, zero. And it's, it's a really, really uh, vital instrument to write rock music on. You know, when you play a, a G major on a Strat through a Marshall, it just sounds godlike. And play a G major on a piano, and it just sounds... Ching, you know, just some little happy little chord... <laughs> You know, so there's a lot of really cool rock stuff that I just kind of really have to use my imagination when I'm playing it on piano.
1: Can you tell me a little bit about your writing process with Spock's Beard?
2: I use kind of a method similar to Neil's. Um I kind of collect ideas over time and, and record little bits and pieces, little kernels of stuff, and then I'll at some point get an inspiration for a, a song, and then uh, go through my little pool of ideas and see if anything fits. And if it does, then I'll try to find somewhere to plug it in and if not, it's like, well, where does the song needs to go now? And, you know, sometimes I write new parts, but it's just kind of piece by piece um, and then trying to, you know, write transitions in between the pieces. I just read a thing on the Flying Colors page where they were interviewing Neil and he said that he wrote that way. And I was like, oh, cool. I thought he just created everything on the spot like the genius he is, you know, but he pools ideas also. So it made me feel a little bit better anyway.
1: How much collaboration do you and the band do with John Begelhold? And is there anyone else you write with?
2: He he is actually the major writer of the band. It's everything that I've ever written, going back to the '80s. Even is is with him, and he also you know manages to co-write some stuff with uh, with Al and with Nick, and you know he's he's kind of got his hand in a lot of the songs. And the stuff we're doing now, he's got one of one of the cool songs that we just recorded was one that he just wrote by himself this time which is a first you know he usually collaborates yeah if, if you kind of total up minutes or parts of what everyone's written John is probably like the major contributor so yeah we still write with him definitely and also Stan uh, who's been involved in you know pretty much the last three or four records Stan usually comes up with some really excellent little bits he writes with Al a lot <laughs>
1: much of a change was it after working with neil morse for so long um obviously you answered that in regards to uh, what john and stand contribute uh, but there was obviously something that changed
2: yeah we we did a lot of experimentation i mean that feel euphoria record is you know i listen to that now and it's like wow we were uh, head, headed way off in a different direction on that one you know we just kind of pulled back we kind of experimented a little bit and and finally on our last record I think everyone realized what people expect from Spock's beard and you know I I know that I I learned a lot from Neil as far as songwriting because you know I'd only written three or four minute songs before that and uh, you know just watching his creative process I could see where how a lot of a lot of things were happening in his head and One thing he said to me once that really was um, a key was uh, he was talking to somebody and he goes, you just get an idea and you just follow it. You just follow the idea. It's like, oh, that's how, you know, instead of just going, you know, a strict structure of a song, you just start to, um, where where is this little journey taking me? You know, and you go from piece to piece. And that was kind of an eye opener. It opened up my way of thinking a little bit. I started listening to, you know, more prog bands at that time, too, and kind of seeing how that went. What was it like working with
1: neil morse again on his uh song time changer for the testimony
2: 2 album i understand all you guys played on it yeah neil it was all uh, you know like people record now it was all done over the internet yeah neil recorded he had his demo tracks um uh, that he had recorded at home he hadn't recorded the real uh, album tracks yet and he just sent stems to everybody and gave us uh, the parts that he wanted us to sing i just sat sat right here like i'm doing now with my little microphone singing the part and then i just emailed it to him and He compiled them all when he got them and that was it. It's really weird to record that way now. It's like, uh, it's really cool in some ways, but also kind of bizarre in other ways because you don't have the immediate feedback of of the guy saying, no, pronounce your R a little bit less, you know, or just too much attack on that. Or, you know, you have to email something and then you get the comment and then you have to record it again and then you get, you know. So it's a little bit more tedious in a way. But on the other side of it though, man, it's great. I always used to feel a lot of pressure recording because, you know, you go in and you record in the studio and you want to get drums and bass and maybe one of the keyboards like Hammond or something. And, uh, you know, you finally get a good drum track after several takes and then be like, OK, let's let's uh, fix those bass things. And everyone would be just there. Come on, hurry. You know, so. And then it's like, can I work on tone for a while? OK, sure. And then, you know, five minutes later, everyone's looking at their watch and it's like, ah okay, this is good enough, but sitting here at home, I can spend two hours tweaking some stupid little sound for the bridge of a song, if I want, you know, and I don't have anyone looking over my shoulder, so I can, you know, really kind of dial things in a lot more than I could if I was on the clock, so that part of it's great. What is your rig like now for recording? You know, I've, I've gradually migrated from bringing my whole rig into a studio, like back, you know, when we started Spock's Beard and miking speaker cabinets, you know, and that whole routine. And I've gradually, like, replaced one bit at a time with digital technology. So now I use no gear. It's all in the box. I just use, uh, you know, I re- I'm, I'm one of the few remaining Windows guys on earth, musicians that are still using Windows. So I I use Cubase, and I use that uh, plugin, IK Multimedia plugin called Ampeg SVX, and it's just amazing. It's killer. It's got all the Ampeg bass amps that have ever been made, and, you know, different mic models, and you can change a bunch of stuff, stomp boxes, and uh, I've got a couple that are just set up that, uh, you know, sound exactly like my real bass rig. (coughs) And so uh, I just record direct into the the computer and then apply the uh, plugin. Yeah, technology is great. You know, I'm in a, a cover band with uh Ted, the new singer for Spox and we played we played this fundraiser thing last night and he has a pre Sonus um uh mixing board, which is uh a digital board. And right now, you know what we've been doing before with our sound person? We have a hundred foot snake on this big old heavy reel and reel it out there and have to cover it in the doorways and, you know, set up the mixer and find a table and he he just downloaded this app where you can uh Hook it up, hook your mixer up through with a computer and a router, and then just mix from anywhere in the room using an iPad. The drummer's wife was doing sound for us last night because their regular one couldn't be there. And she was just walking around with this little iPad with full control of our entire PA. And it just worked. It was flawless. There was not one single little glitch. They, ha- they also have little uh, apps you can download to your iPhone where you can control your own monitor mix with an iPhone. So I'm, you know, I'm doing that definitely because I'm always bumming out about my monitor mix. Well, you know, sometimes we'll do a sound check and I think my monitor mix is good, but then when we get going, the keyboard track will be like three times as loud as I need it to be. And, you know, I'll start getting buried under other stuff. And, you know, instead of like having to get the <laughs> person's attention and can I have a little bit less of, you know, whatever, I can just reach over and like, do it myself. Can you tell me a bit about
1: your bases? You have some kind of customized one, don't you?
2: Yeah, it's a used to be a Rickenbacker. Yeah, Ricks, you know, Ricks have some really cool... I mean, they've got that legacy that, you know, you can't deny. I mean, Getty and Chris Squire and Paul McCartney and all those guys that I just fully love, you know. But there were other times where I just wanted to sound like I was playing a Fender. And uh, I can't travel with more than one bass most of the time, so I wound up putting a set of jazz bass pickups in... Well, first I had a, a regular... My old white Rick was i didn't want to ruin that you know because it was just like stock and it was nice and so a buddy of mine found the black one that i have now he found one in a pawn shop that was just messed up but the the neck and body were good the hardware was just rusty and crappy and had holes in the body where you know holes have been rubbed and the finish is oxidized and neither one of the pickups worked and i got it for i don't know 300 bucks or something and made it a frankenstein base and i those jazz bass pickups in it Uh, so then i had four pickups i had the uh, two pickups where rick pickups go and then two other pickups where jazz bass pickups go and i could switch between them so you know it's really versatile that way and uh that's that's the main thing for that bass that's what really makes it deviate from a standard rick the most just the pickup setup but yeah over the over the years i've managed i've replaced a bunch of stuff too i mean you know it's almost zero rick at this point the body actually delaminated from the neck uh, it was i was having tuning issues and it's like what i can't every when i sit down it's fine when i stand up it's out of tune what the heck's going on and for a long time i was dealing with that and then i noticed that there was th- these the paint was starting to crack along along the n- lines of the neck through body lines you know oh. oh what's this and i sent it to repair thing and they said you're His body's just toast, you know. So they made a new body for it. So really, the only part of that bass that's original Rick is the neck.
1: You play primarily with a pick, right? Or do you also play with fingers?
2: I play with both. Um, For Spock's, I played with pick a little bit before Spock's beard, but I was a little bit uncomfortable with a pick. When, When I got in Spock's beard, I really had to work on that technique a lot. And I'm at the point now where I can play kind of equally with pick or fingers equal comfort level i never played guitar so you know the pick thing didn't really that's how al he plays with his fingers now because he started on bass too and and then he just picked up a guitar and he was playing it with his fingers all the time and his brothers would just go why don't you just use a pick dude he just wanted to be stubborn it's like no i like it this way and so it was one of his one of his uh determinations you know it's like i'm gonna get better than these guys using my fingers and i'll show them (laughs) <laughs> there's more morse brothers oh yeah that family is freaky freakish musicians there's three brothers and they're all just pretty amazing musicians you know i mean you know you know alan and, and uh, neil of course but richard too he's he's kind of a freak of nature he's got this musical memory that's he's like the rain man of of music i mean he, if he he can he he knows he plays all these cover gigs you know he just uh he lives in germany part of the time he plays pubs in germany and he's got a song list of like three thousand songs and he has like a little book that he sets out on tables and you can request any song in there and he can just play it perfect all these weird ones with like six or seven verses of lyrics and stuff and he just remember he just got, got this memory for music
1: do you ever have trouble remembering a part and what do you do to prepare for these songs live
2: yeah well all of us you know i mean we can't just like call it a song out of our repertoire on the spot, because, you know, the songs are all pretty insane. Um, I can remember music stuff pretty easy, but lyrics I have a real, real hard time with remembering. I mean, even background parts. Sometimes I'll have to, like, make cheat sheets for little three-line background parts. I don't know, my brain just doesn't work. When I'm playing, it's like all of my CPU power you know the full resolution goes into like whatever notes i'm playing on the bass but yeah we i mean all of us we really have to get a set list determine what songs are going to play and then you know knuckle down and woodshed those for a while before we get to rehearsal because you know there's a lot of parts i mean not only not only playing parts but you know especially for rio he's learning what pat getting his patches all organized and when to go to which patch and how to turn around and play a different keyboard at a certain time he, he really does a little dance <laughs> doing a gig. I don't see how he coordinates all that stuff. Because you know, sometimes he'll have to pull his hand off of, off of a keyboard, turn around to play one of his other keyboards, and change a patch in like a half a second. You know? so He's got to really have it down. Everything's got to like push one button and you're there. Can you tell me a little bit about
1: the new live DVD? And was it bittersweet since it was the last show with Nick? Well,
2: we had no idea that was going to be the last show with Nick at the time. You know, Nick had joined Circus du Soleil about a year before. You know, he thought, and, and we all kind of thought too, that he'd be able to have enough breaks and time in between breaks and stuff where we could still do Spock stuff. And, uh, you know, you never know what fate's going to give you. I mean, he, he, signed a, he had signed a two-year contract, and, you know, the show might have run its course, and, or he might have gotten pissed and quit or, you know, whatever. So, you know, at the time, we were just kind of like working around his schedule as much as we could. So we didn't know that. Uh, That was after we'd done rehearsals for a Europe tour. Uh, We did that one L.A. gig before we went to Europe, since we were all down there and all rehearsed and in L.A. all at the same time. And, you know, it's really idiotic to record the first show of a tour. (laughs) So, but we did it, you know, it kind of fell in our lap. Uh, Jim Harrell, the guy that uh, organized the gig, He has a 42-track rig. It's a computer-based thing. I don't know what he uses, but he has 42 tracks. And that's just kind of there. We can use it uh, if we want. And so we go, okay, that would be cool. And then some video guys called and said, hey, we'd like to, uh, you know, if you can just basically cover our expenses, we'll we'll do some video for you. And it's like, man, this is really dangerous recording and videotaping the first show. But, you know, it's just too easy. We can't say no, so we did it. It turned out pretty good. You know, we, we actually, for a change, we had enough rehearsal. The history of Spock's beard is like, we always go out and are under-rehearsed and just like freaking out on the first couple shows. Like, you know, thinking of the part that's coming up literally one second before you have to play it. Our first couple gigs are usually like working out kinks and stuff. But this one, you know, we had a couple extra days of rehearsal and we were kind of ready, ready to go for it. And, you know, so it was, a, it was actually a good show. There were a couple little blips here and there, but, you know, you can cover that stuff up in the mix. So We couldn't do too much, though, because it was videotaped at the same time, so you can't just, like, replace a part, you know, like a lot of bands do, because the camera's on your hand, you know? So, yeah, a lot of it was just kind of, you know, if something was kind of funny, you just kind of bury it in the mix for a second. And, you know, a lot of it was just mixing. Rob, our English guy that runs Sound For Us Live, he he's done a lot of our live tour uh stuff he did an incredible job on the mix on that too he you know i heard the mix was like was that the gig really that's not what it sounded like to me this sounds really good (laughs) you know because on on stage everything you know we were all like nervous and the mix you know what you're hearing on stage is not necessarily great because you're hearing whatever you hear you know it's not really the the full properly balanced everything
0: got anything to say. Tell us everything. Everything you learned along the way. The crowd, they love you today. Today. Tell us everything.
1: Tell me about the new guy, Ted Leonard. How did you find him and his amazing
2: voice? Yeah, he's killer. Um, we, he was in a band, well he still is in a band called Enchant. They, they've got a record coming out this year too. Um, and they were on the same label with us, Inside Out. And we did two tours with them in Europe. Uh, one of them was, I think, Day for Night Tour when Neil was still in the band. And then we did another one uh, later on probably your octane yeah octane tour without neil and the um but when we were first on you know we didn't we weren't familiar with enchant and then you know we met them. they're from the bay area and um uh, met them, and they played their first gig and it's like fuck who's this guy man what a voice you know fast forward a bunch of years and <clears throat> ted wound up moving from the bay area up to uh up to the sacramento area here and then i wound up here too and we kind of got back in touch and started this cover band together. And, uh, and, uh, then, you know, the, the Spock's beard chair became available and, and everybody in the band knew and liked Ted from those, those tours. And, you know, just kind of made the suggestion and everyone just goes, Oh yeah, let's go for it. You guys first did a couple of live gigs with him when Nick couldn't make it. Oh yeah. Well, last, last summer. Yeah, we did, um, Two, two festivals. We did a high-voltage festival in London and the uh, Sweden Rock in uh, Sweden. And uh, we did Mexicali, but uh, yeah, he's done three, three sh- full shows with us. And then a long time ago, we did a, a group giant thing on stage with Enchant. Uh, it was Enchant and Spock's beard, everybody on stage at the same time. We did uh, Carry On Wayward Son at some club in Europe somewhere that was a blast two drums two bass players two three guitars you know it was just a mess on stage it was actually kind of cool i was you know ed from enchant we were both playing the same part but he he kind of dialed in his bass to be kind of low endy and i was i had mine you know pretty thin sounding so it was like biamped. he was the he was the low end and i was the high end How is the new album going it's going great uh we just recorded basically drums um you know, we went down there and did some rehearsal where we kind of ironed out some arrangements and stuff, and went in and uh, got drum tracks, all of us were playing, but we just, we were just playing scratch tracks for Jimmy, and we got drum tracks for about 50 minutes of music, and then uh, Al's been in overdubbing some things, and I've been doing bass parts up here, and Ted went down there and did some vocals, so the songs are really coming together, and we're going to go in at, again at some point and, uh, you know, get a bunch more material, and this will be the first time that we've ever had so many songs to choose from so we can like, you know, select a, a CD's worth out of that instead of just kind of using most of what we have and hoping it fits together.
1: Do you guys write all new material every time or do you pull from older, unreleased stuff?
2: Yeah, everyone sends around demos and we kind of decide beforehand which ones we like. Mm-hmm. And then once we've decided, it's like, okay, well, that's 64 minutes, that's, that's good. And we just go in and record it, those. And this is, well, we did it once before. We had, um, I think it was Octane. We had a bonus disc with a whole bunch. We had four or five extra songs on there. But usually we just decide beforehand which ones we're definitely going to use and then just record those. Uh, this time is going to be another one of those where we have, you know, four, five, six extra songs that we may use as a bonus disc or maybe not as anything or, you know, whatever we'll have you know good amount of material to write from and um, al wrote a couple songs with neil this time too so we've got some uh, neil morse influence definitely going on on this one i'm actually worried that it might be too much there's a couple songs that sound just like is neil still in the band this sounds like old spock's beard
1: so you guys don't write all new material you pull it from a bunch of different places both new and old
2: yeah we do a lot of um, not too much band collaboration. It's really hard to write prog rock like that. In fact, that's what another thing that Neil said in his interview that I was very encouraged by. Um, you know, and it is. I mean, when you're writing all these weird little fiddly bits and transitions from piece to piece, and you know, big thematic things, you, you kind of have to be sitting down by yourself and in, in a really good mental space, you know, to really concentrate and bear down on it. Um, but everyone kind of writes independently. One, maybe groups of two. <clears throat> and then we'll build up demos. And then once the demos are in fairly decent shape, we'll start passing them around. And, you know, when we record them, it, there's, there's room for everyone to uh, put in their individuality. But, uh, yeah, a lot of the songs are, are written just kind of uh, independently, you know, on our own at, at our own places.
1: And do you get John or Stan involved uh, when you get stumped on something?
2: Uh, that's the story of my life i mean i i can't i don't think well i don't write lyrics so that's a big thing but you know i'll, I'll write m- music sometimes i write all of the music for a song sometimes i'll write parts of it sometimes just a little bit and if i'm stuck or if john's stuck we'll just send send each other what we have so far it's like look i don't know where i should go with this and you know invariably one of us will come up with a little key to the next part and then you know we'll bounce it back and forth quite a few times uh john lives in la and i'm up here so i can't go over to his house like i used to but uh you know the beauty of the internet we we both are on cubase too so we can just send project folders back and forth and uh uh stan and al they get together and write you know stan goes over to al's and they'll sit they'll sit down and jam out ideas but then you know they'll get stuck too and like stan will take a piece home and work on it or He'll bring a piece over that he's stuck on, and I'll, you know, so there's a lot of kind of both ways, together and separate. What does music mean to you? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's changed a lot over, over my life. You know, if you would ask asked me when I was a little kid, it would have just been kind of a cool thing to kind of a little fun thing that's on TV, you know, playing behind the monkeys or something, you know. And, you know, later on, it just became like a really cool activity, like almost like a sport. I mean, physical the physicality of learning instruments stuff you know i was really really into that and absorbing and uh you know after that it just became like almost like food i mean it's i was really really lived live music and listening to it and playing it and you know the whole process of of everything uh at this point you know i I'm mean I'm, i don't even really want to say this but i will i'm in kind of a weird spot in my life where you know i'm getting older and the industry's changing around me and you know i've kind of got this lifestyle and i don't have the physical energy that i used to have and you know yada yada keep on going it's it's become more of a craft now for me um you know it's like if you're a carpenter and or a, a furniture maker or something you know you're not so much you know you've learned to make certain things in certain ways and and you're not, it's not so important to create a completely you know new kind of chair that's really bizarre, and you know it's like you, you know I take more pride in just like okay, here's my two favorite kind of chairs I like to make i 'll just make those maybe with different finishes on them you know and uh, i haven't been listening to a lot of music lately either. Um, I don 't know why i'm not really into that that much. I mean I've, I wish I was a little bit more into it but uh hopefully it's just a phase yeah well you know i don't know and and also you know being in a cover band kind of you know is is a thing that might have a some factor into it too you know like i'm learning lady gaga songs all the time and and doing you know playing like really long gigs and you know when i come home the next day the last thing i want to do is listen to loud music or listen to any music or pick up my bass you know it's like oh, i just leave that thing in the closet today <laughs> when when i was uh when i first started playing bass you know i had a real physical infatuation with it i mean i would crave crave it you know i would pick it up and just like play it play it and stuff you know try to learn things and um not so much anymore now it's more kind of purposeful it's like okay i i need to learn uh this difficult whatever and so i'll just sit there and woodshed whatever i have to do you know it might be running scales or something until i can accomplish that part i kind of you know learn what i have to do for what i have to do
1: have you done any other recording projects either recently or uh in the past that you could speak of i've done a lot of stuff
2: over the years uh mainly in the last uh you know couple years it's been spock's beard and and various cover bands but I've done, you know, recording projects, uh, bass parts, for a lot, of, a lot of really cool prog stuff in the last few years, like Big Big Train, and uh, Steve Thorne, and uh, I'm drawing blanks now, but uh, a band called Jerusalem, and a bunch of stuff from Rob in England, he, he does a lot of uh, prog stuff, and, you know, sometimes if it's just an artist and they don't have a, a bass player, you know, he'll, he'll uh, send me some tracks. So I've been doing a lot of that. It's kind of remote. You know, I just do them here. So I'm not in there with the guys, but my name's on the record. Did you do any recording with Eric Burton? No, just some live stuff. And we recorded some live. We, we did some recording sessions for new material a couple times, but, you know, it was, I don't know, we never really pursued getting a deal with that. There was, you know, there's a lot of demos floating around that we recorded, but never really came of anything. So
1: what's next for Spock's Beard? And uh, when do you think the album will be ready
2: we 're shooting for a fall release it 's kind of early too early to accurately predict, but the way we 're going, I think we can make it if we keep going at our the clip we 're going at now um, and touring is kind of contingent on that record being out. We wanted to do a tour we 've been trying to tour for a long time and uh, you know primarily because of the lineup change and everything a lot of promoters are afraid that we're not going to do a draw and our draw is kind of you know barely adequate as it is so you know if we if we lose a few ticket sales because nick isn't there anymore then you know they're kind of nervous so we haven't been uh they're all saying well wait till you have a new cd out and then then we'll do a tour so uh, everything is kind of like after the new cd out then we'll have we'll have more plans we we do have a a one-off show coming out we're playing july 7th in uh, Germany at a festival called Night of the Prague, and, uh, that's going to be a cool show, it's just two days of massive Prague madness, uh, I think we're going to probably try to arrange an L.A. show on, uh, you know, before that, after our rehearsals, it'll probably be like July 3rd, we've been talking about, at some place in, uh, Southern California, and, you know, there's a couple, couple other things in the wind, but, uh, just due to logistics and how much it costs to get us around. I don't know if they're going to happen, but uh, yeah, but it's kind of like after the CD comes out, then we'll have more to talk about. Is there anything else you would like to impart to our listeners? I just actually just like to thank everyone that, uh, you know, has followed us and dealt with us through all these changes and all the years. And, you know, it's really, I mean, we couldn't, like everyone says, we couldn't exist without, without the interest from, some people, and uh, you know, our message board on our website always really inspiring for me. You know, if I'm like depressed or something, I'll go read the message board, and it's always something really cool. And you know, Prague fans are generally really great guys—you know, intelligent and open-minded—and you know, so I don't know. All of us in the band really just appreciate everyone being there and being interested in us.
1: Okay, well, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, you guys keep on doing what you're doing. I really dig it. Thank you. I'd like to thank my guest today Dave Maros as well as all the other members of Spock's Beard Rio Okamoto, Alan Morse, Jimmy Keegan, Ted Leonard as well as songwriters John Begelhold and Stan Alsmus, and former members Nick DeVergilio and Neil Morse. Please check out their website at Spoxbeard.com. We're going to leave you with one more track here. This is called Edge of the In-Between. I'm Josh Almond for Music Life Radio.